Before we start, we want to say a quick thank you to Wharton Fintech's Platinum Sponsor, the Stevens Center for Innovation in Finance. The Stevens Center is a premier research, education, and thought leadership institution in the world for financial technology. everyone, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Today, we have two fantastic guests. We're joined by Edith Young and Chris McCann, general partners of Race Capital, a venture capital fund looking for market-transforming companies. Edith is also an author and creator of the China Internet Report, an annual report on China technology trends, as well as a writer of Silicon Bad News a weekly briefing on Silicon Valley news. Chris is an entrepreneur turned investor who previously founded and led the community program at Greylock Partners. In this interview, we talked about their background, investing strategy, and we even explored the Chinese fintech ecosystem. Please join me in an entertaining conversation with Edith Young and Chris McCann. Well, Chris, Edith, thank you for joining us on the Wharton Fintech Podcast. We are very, very happy that you're here. And can we start by hearing a little bit about yourselves and your background? Let's go first. Sure. Hey, everybody. My name is Chris McCann. I'm one of the general partners at Race Capital. Before this, I used to be a founder entrepreneur myself as well. So in 2009, I started a company called Startup Digest. It was one of the really early tech media publications that were out there. We grew it to over a million subscribers, and then it was bought and acquired by Techstars, who still operates and maintains it. Afterwards, I left and I joined a venture capital fund called Greylock Partners. I work really closely with one of the guys there named Reid Hoffman, mostly looking at a lot of the emerging market sectors that we're focused on. And then a little over a year ago, I left to start Race Capital with Edith and our two other partners. Yeah, so my name is Edith Young. I'm actually born and raised in Hong Kong. Half of my family is in Beijing and the other half is in Hong Kong. I actually started as a developer and 10 years mostly enterprise software in six years at Cebo System and then Oracle bought Cebo. I went to Oracle. After Oracle, I went to Autodesk. They make AutoCAD. And then after 10 years enterprise software, I thought life is short. You got to do something that you really care about. And I really wanted to learn more about consumer. Uh, One thing leads to another. I met the founder of Dolphin Browser. And Dolphin is actually started by a Chinese Microsoft engineer out of Beijing. And when he started uh, Dolphin, all of his users were in the U.S., and, but the whole team was in China. But anyway, long story short, we raised a Series A from Sequoia, Matrix Partner, and Qualcomm, grew from zero to $150 million and sold it to Changyo, a gaming company, listed on the NASDAQ. And then I joined 500 Startups which is a very, very active uh, incubator and early stage seed fund. And then now Race Capital with Chris. Great. So we have two outstanding guests today. So tell us about Race Capital. Uh, Tell us why did you decide to launch a new fund in the first place? And then, you know, what is your thesis and how are you approaching the investment process during this COVID time? Yeah. I'll take this one. So Race Capital was founded a little over a year ago. So myself, Edith, and we have two other partners also, Alfred and Phil, we were all co-investing together for many years. And 
for a multitude of reasons, we decided to come together and create Race together. I'll just introduce them super briefly. So Alfred, if he was on the show, we kind of jokingly refer to Alfred as the Steve Jobs of Enterprise. He was the co-founder and CEO of a company called BEA Systems, which literally invented transaction processing in sort of APIs within the enterprise. They were doing a lot of the developer tool in the core transaction infrastructure processing systems. So he ran the company as the founder and both as the public CEO and sold it in 2008 for $8.6 billion to, uh, to Oracle. And then our other partner, Phil, uh, really briefly, he was the first product manager for the very first Android phone, which is uh, actually an HTC phone. And then afterwards, he also started uh, the HTC Vive, the VR headset. He was the inventor and creator of that. And then after that, he joined um, uh, Horizon Ventures as a partner there, which is the uh, family office for Li Keqiang out in Hong Kong. So the four of us, um, through our skill sets, interests, personalities, we just both really resonated together, really loved working with each other. And especially at times like this, the, with the whole COVID economy, a lot of things and changes going on, there really is no better time to invest than now. A lot of the events that we see today will literally change the trajectory of not just the United States, but really the world for over the next decade. And you know, we really personally believe that the worst time is really the best time um, to be investing, especially in the early stage private market side. Got it. And looking at your core beliefs, I understand that you are laser focused on speed, meaning timing, and also you look for great people. Right. Can you expand on this concept? Well, other than all of us like to drive fast car and race, um, that's who handles race capital. Actually, I really want to emphasize particularly the people part because everything else, people come first. And I was reading this really great article about how, you know, like if we find great people, even a mediocre idea could turn into a great company. Just think about, you know, back in the days uh, when Google first started, there was already Yahoo but they were doing something that already exists, but just a little bit better. And in our mind, like even if it, you're a bad person, even a great idea, it wouldn't turn into a great company. So for us, I think the number one, most important thing is actually people. But at the end of the day, we hang out with a lot of really young entrepreneurs and we found a lot of young entrepreneurs sometimes like to overthink a lot of things. Hey, should I do this? I check with this person. Don't get me wrong, I actually think Wharton is a great school. And of course, you know, going through school, we all train to be a really great employee. So when we have good idea, a lot of times we're trying to figure it out. Should we check with this person? Should we check with that person? No, we usually, it's like, no, 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 no. It's all about execution, speed. And even though you may have, you may get it wrong for a few times, it's completely okay. So a lot of time we found that we become sort of the coach for our founders, look, you know, just, just do it, just do it and let's learn how things happen. And then timing is everything. Have, as Chris was saying earlier, we think COVID is a very, very horrible time for all of us. And Miguel, like we all stuck at home right now, but it's also the best time because when we're stuck at home, a lot of really interesting trends came about teleeducation, telehealth, a lot of the video-related companies doing really well, pharmaceutical, anything to do with PPE and COVID are all doing amazing. And of course, there's a lot of industry not doing well as well. So we think that timing is everything. So hence our core value. Understood. Understood. 
you clearly value the talent, but what is your approach to ensuring that this is, in fact, the right team, that this is, in fact, the right founder to back? I'll take this one. Really, this kind of ties into the sort of due diligence side of what a venture capitalist does. In its most general sense, so since COVID has happened, we've looked at 150 companies, primarily on the seed stage side, because again, we're early stage investors. So we do pre-seed all the way up to A, that tends to be our focus sweet spot. You know, when you start looking things above that, like more the revenue and metrics and core, that all that stuff starts to become much more important. But on the earlier stage side, it really is all about the people side. And you know, once you find an idea or a person or a concept or an MVP that's intriguing, this is when the whole process of due diligence comes in. So you have to do customer references to see not just what the founder is saying, because founders tend to be very enthusiastic about things sometimes, but you also want to see the person actually using the software, the system, or the infrastructure. What is it like for them? How does it improve? Is it a 10x improvement over whatever they've been using previously? Is this a new, a net new thing that they have not been able to do before? You could also do other things like look at uh, founder references. So you could look at people that they've worked with before, people who've been on their team before, their bosses, their immediate reports, and all that. And then also very simply too, and which is why we kind of emphasize the speed side is you can see what they've actually built. And so one thing we always say for the intercalls for all the companies that we take is we actually much prefer seeing the demo or the product rather than a pitch itself. Because a pitch, you can kind of go on and it's more kind of research oriented and talk about the market. But honestly, like, you know, we're founders at heart. We really just love to dig into the product. What have you built? Because then, then you can really judge like, okay, if they started the company a couple of months or, you know, a year ago, how much progress have they made towards since then? And how much of this is tangible that you could actually see? So that's just like a couple highlights of, you know, some of the ways like we think about it and, and you know, kind of how you dissect these things, you know, once you're more interested in them. And now that you're doing virtually all of this over Zoom or, you know, whatever software you're using. Aside from not being able to meet in person, what are the other differences in due diligence and post-COVID due diligence versus pre-COVID due diligence? Well, actually, I wrote a really funny article called How Do You Actually Pitch on Zoom? And you would not believe, Miguel, on, we got like founders at Zoom and Drive. I was really like fear for their life, seriously. And then also, and don't get me wrong, like we are all learning too, like including us, right? But you basically need to treat now like Zoom is everything, like from you pitching to in the boardroom to your initial contact in a cafe, or is everything in this small little box. So how you present and control the rhythm and like how you want to your potential investor or partner or customer to see, or even your employee. Your energy is almost sort of like now is, I don't know if Wharton have it, but you know, when I was in school, like we have communication class 101. This is on steroid because you can't like really feel my energy or my little movement anymore to sort of get a better sense of who I am. So now you have to be even more expressive and more verbalized and take control of the meetings. And then, yeah, so for us, a really, really key thing also is to figure it out we assume. And that's why if you see, we've been seeing in the last six months, 
since COVID, basically, valuation actually had, for early stage, had dropped at least 30%. And I think have a lot to do with, if you're early and you don't have a relationship with any existing investor, it is very hard to pull a trigger over someone that you never met before, right? And everything that Chris mentioned on due diligence, when we have to go through Zoom, it honestly is just not the same. So that's why you see like the investment landscape for later stage, where a lot of the VCs are uh, double down on certain ones because first of all, they, they can let them die, right? If you already have billions of dollars investing in certain things. But second, really is you're familiar with the person. It's easier to pull a trigger. So I think that one quick advice for the rest of the audience, if you're a founder or CEOs, we would love to hear from you, but because we can't, never met you, so it is good to really sort of take control of the communication, not just on Zoom, but also do email updates, show the progress, don't assume anything, and um, really take control of any of these like Zoom agenda and, and everything else. Thank you, Edith. That makes a lot of sense. Great. So let's talk a little bit about your focus areas. Fintech is one of those. And we would love to understand why did you decide to focus on fintech specifically? Yeah, maybe I'll talk about our broad thesis really shortly and then sort of dive into fintech specifically. So for race capital, you know, we tend to be focused on all things on the B2B and enterprise side. And we love all things on the infrastructure layer. So whether it's developer tools, embedded systems, APIs, fintech infrastructure, any of this sort of stuff, this is the kind of thing that we gravitate towards. And why fintech specifically? So as you know, you know, working at City and through your experience, finance is a huge industry. You're talking about hundreds of trillions of dollars of market cap when you peel away lending and capital markets and banking. And this is massive, massive, massive markets. So we feel really strongly that all of these financial features are going to be start to be embedded across many, many, many more applications. Some you might imagine, like, you know, if you have a neobank, that's a very obvious one. Some maybe not so much. Like if you're an e-commerce site, actually getting paid through your merchant account, why shouldn't that all be facilitated through the application itself? There's many people that talk about this in the space. Um, it's usually referred to broadly as embedded fintech or embedded finance, or sort of anything around that. So for us, like when most people typically think about fintech, they usually think about the applications that sit on top, the Robinhood, the SoFi, the Coinbase, the Square, et cetera, et cetera. But many people forget there's a whole host of plumbing that actually makes all this stuff work. Whether you're talking about the core banking systems, whether you're talking about the partnering banks, whether you're talking about the banking as a service APIs, these are the kinds of things we get excited about and focus about. It's far less about the applications and much more about this infrastructure. This also includes a lot of the tangential services around it. So compliance, KYC, AML, all this stuff sort of around it. So if you're going to see the rise of embedded fintech and many, many more applications embed the stuff, you're going to need a whole host of infrastructure to make this work. So there's a ton of opportunity in this space, and that's what we really focus on for race. And do you have a geographical focus? We tend to prefer things, everything in the U.S., especially on the fintech side. So when you go on the fintech side, um, when you start looking at compliance, regulations, banking partners, it is fractured based on certain countries and geographies. So we do have a preference towards the U.S. That being said, we will look um, broadly. So, uh, you know, maybe I'll just take one of these categories for banking as a service companies. We've looked at 
practically most of them in the States, also in London, some in Asia, because you, you never know where some of this innovation is going to come from either. So, you know, we tend to have a much more broader open mind to this, but we do have a slight preference towards anything based in the States. Got it. Got it. And now, given that you, as a firm, um, and also Edith, through your personal experiences, you have this connection to Hong Kong and China. Do you have an idea? Can you help us understand some of the biggest differences between fintech in the U.S. and fintech in China? Yes. So for the last four years, mostly my personal interest, I started this China Internet Report. It's more or less, I'm sure, Miguel, when you lived in China, you probably felt like, oh my God, like they're so different and there's so much learning to do. And I really, frankly, I was tired of all my, actually Chris, every time I came back from China, would ask me, hey, what's happening in China? And I basically say, you know what? You just should just look at this report, start asking me because it's very complicated. But um, I think fintech is one of those areas is very different from how we describe all the other tech platforms, right? We will call Baidu is the Google of China or Alibaba is the Amazon of China. But there isn't such thing for the fintech side. In fact, it's the other way around. I actually think that there's a lot of innovation in the U.S. are now copying what China is doing, not trying to bring a U.S. giant to go to China. It's the other way around. In fact, I think if everybody wants to see the future of fintech, just go to China. But the key thing is very different is, and actually there is this very nice gentleman, John Mahoney from Goldman Sachs, actually described their best. China fintech is not a disruption story. It's not a startup come and change everything. No, it's actually our necessity. And what that means is, unlike the U.S., U.S. is actually quite advanced. Like from 30, 40 years ago, there's already built on the mainframe. And China didn't have any of that. In fact, I think when you lived in China during SARS, I mean, it's less than 3 million people even have credit card. So... The banking interest, and I remember like when I was little, actually, it's not even little. I think even like five, seven, eight years ago, if I go to China and open a bank account, I have to line up and I have to like use a pen on the piece of white paper to get for, it's just like kind of weird. Like there isn't, it's very broken. So because of that, um, it's a combination of very low banking and credit card penetration, plus young people pretty much now, it's like almost 900 million people on mobile internet. So the combination of that and plus during SARS is when nobody can get out, right? Just like what happened to COVID today. And it really, the story started with Alibaba, with um, Tmall and Taobao, because nobody trusts anyone. So they created really the concept of escrow. So therefore, I receive the good, then I will release the fund. So then later on, morph into Alipay, which is, you can say it's PayPal, but it's so much more than that because it started with e-commerce. I wish PayPal would have been acquired by Amazon and it would be a completely different story. Didn't happen in the US. So in China, it really was a very logical thing that happened from payment first. And because it's related to e-commerce, and mind that it's crazy to think about the concept of credit score. It really started in 2015 in China, licensed by the Chinese government for you know, all the banks plus Alipay and Financial and Tencent to build this. And versus us in the US is Equifax. TransUnion is like, I don't know, older than all three of us combined, seriously. So 
because of that, from payment leads into credit, which is only five years ago, to now is crazy to think about because of all these combined, then you can offer wealth management, insurance, and M Financial, which is going to go public in Hong Kong and Shanghai very, very soon, is the world top, I don't know, definitely the number one private company in the world, $150 billion going to go public. And it's already the largest mutual fund, largest payment platform. It's just insane. So versus in the US, if we want to do anything, man, it's pain about Chris can tell you all about it. You need to get a banking license. Forget it. Like every single state, you need to work on it. Um, and I found that now is the U.S. story is a disruption story. We fit the famous Wells Fargo, break it down to many. That didn't exist because everything is created from scratch. So that will be, I would say, the major difference. It's truly fascinating, Edith. Thank you for that. We've had on the show. David Bell is the founder of Nubank, and he famously said, I went to China and I saw the future, right? So that he's drawn big inspirations from there. How do you see the Chinese market evolving going forward? Is there a lot of innovation coming from the ground up, meaning small fintechs being constantly funded, you know, given that there are a few big dominant fintechs? Yeah, I think it really depends on what you're working on. Um, I sort of basically break down the China fintech market into four pieces, right? So the payment game, unfortunately, is probably a little bit too late for anybody else because Alibaba and financials and Tencent is just so strong in digital payment. It's very, very tough to, for everybody else to sort of like crack that. And then if you look at anything sort of related credit, so 2015, it was... Seven to eight entities really build it. And mostly you need to be licensed by the government. So for a newcomer to work on that, also a little bit harder. And then leave it with, there are interesting peer-to-peer lending startups for the last few years, which is quite interesting. And sort of the lending club of China, you, you definitely see some of that. But sometimes like they take it too far. I think what's really interesting with China, and, and plus you see all these crypto, crazy crypto companies that started in China. And Chinese government always sort of take it, you know what, if I don't understand it, I'm not going to regulate you. But just don't go crazy on us. And if you're going to do that, then, hey, I'm going to come get you. <laughs> so a lot of the peer-to-peer companies was forced to shut down a few years ago. And then it comes to insurance, obviously, companies like Zhongan, which is a fascinating, like, I don't know if you saw, I think, except America, everybody loved the World Cup and like the real football. I just love the fact that they have the football insurance during the World Cup and basically insure two weeks. If you get really drunk, it's like a, like a dollar or two dollar US and cover for two weeks only and then it take you to the hospital. But things like this, it's just so creative that I think there's still room for a startup to grow. I know some people that would have benefited from that uh, World Cup insurance during the last one in Russia. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And staying on on the China topic, just for one more question, what would you say are the biggest differences for venture investing, actually, between U.S. and China? I think in that sense, you'd be surprised that China and U.S. is actually quite similar. I found, you know, Chris and I have the luxury of working with quite a few Chinese born, but now here in the US. 
the energy, sort of like the can do, never take no for an answer. That attitude, I think when you're a tech entrepreneur, this is in your blood. So it doesn't matter how you look like or your color. But I have to say in the, in the venture capital, the history of venture capital, it is actually highly influenced by the U.S. So you see Sequoia has a China arm, India arm, and of course started in Silicon Valley. So as Qualcomm, so as Matrix Partners, so as GGV, many, Robert Pincus, many, many amazing venture capital firms actually started here and later on developed a team in China. And um, work really independently, but they bring a lot of really cool Silicon Valley DNA. So in that sense, the language and the culture is similar. But having said that, two things that was used quite different is Alibaba and Tencent is a very, very active, in some sense, even more active than any Apple, Google, Facebook, Amazon of the world, 100 times more active, not only in China, but worldwide. Don't call me on it. I forgot New Bank is, is it invested by Tencent or... or uh, yeah, I think you're actually right. Tencent, yeah. And so they're very international-minded and very happy to invest overseas. So it's actually very different. And then last but not least is, I think, the public market in terms of exit. Most, until this year, <laughs> most of the Chinese company, the aspiration is to ring the bell either on NASDAQ or New York Stock Exchange. That American dream, like the freedom, like Chinese entrepreneur really, really, that inspired them because inspired that with uh, Jerry Yang, uh, started with uh, Yahoo. He's like, he looks like Chinese, but he has no family background and not rich. He can make it. If he can make it, I can make it. So that sort of attitude ingrained in most of the Chinese entrepreneurs' mind. So because of that, usually, even though there could be a China story, they want to exit in the U.S. But U.S. entrepreneur, you start here, you stay here. So that sort of international mindset is, I have to say, Chinese entrepreneurs know what's going on in the U.S. a lot more than any of the U.S. entrepreneurs know about the world. And I think it's something that I hope the U.S. community can, be, can really be more aware and learn from, not just Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley is just a mindset. It's not a place. And maybe I'll add on to that one short story. So after Greylock, um, Greylock mostly focused on just Silicon Valley. So almost all of our investments were here. We did practically nothing in China, which is why I was always so interested just to see what was going on. And so after I left, I actually took my family and kids and we moved to mostly Beijing for uh, almost three months. And Edith met me there and we were meeting a bunch of companies. I think it was on like a Friday or something. Uh, and our schedule was super full. And this one founder really wanted to meet with us. And he's like, are you guys free at five o'clock? No, we're busy there. Are you free for dinner? No, sorry, I'm busy there. Our schedule's packed. I don't think we can make it. He's like, are you free at 1 a.m.? And I'm like, <laughs> well, I'm not really doing anything. <laughs> it's kind of a weird time. He's like, I'll meet you 1 a.m. This hotel right now, right here. Like, okay, sure. Um, people are just, soup. they'll do it whenever. Like they literally don't care. It's hard to find that kind of spiritedness here. It's just, it's more rare. I love it. When I lived in China, there was a saying that we would hear all the time is when it starts raining, people would take two umbrellas, one for them and one to maybe sell. (laughs) 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 Great. So let's talk a little bit about your portfolio. We'd love to hear about maybe some of the commonalities of the companies in your portfolio, and maybe you can give us some of the fintech examples of companies you've invested in. 
I'll give two examples. To your broader question, as our name implies, speed conquers all. We love entrepreneurs that move fast and are really aggressive in terms of execution. But I'll give you two examples. So one, we invested in a derivatives exchange called FTX. It was founded by a guy named Sam Bankman. He probably has the best name for starting a fintech company. <laughs> he was a former uh, trader at Jane Street. And when we invested, he, he was actually, he was living um, here in Alameda in Berkeley. But because of the exchange reason, actually decided to move himself and his whole team to Hong Kong. So very much a cross-border um, company. And, and when we met it, we, we invested in the exchange pre-launch, you know, pre-traction, pre-any of this. And it was about a year ago. So they launched in August um, 2019. I mean, literally within this year time span, they've grown to become basically one of the leading derivative exchanges in the world. They clipped over, I think, 100 million in uh, transaction volume literally within the first couple months. And now they regularly cross, you know, billion dollar, multiple day stretches of uh, exchange volumes every single day. On top of this, just to highlight the speed, you know, there's a lot of things going on in the DeFi ecosystem, which is kind of a, in the blockchain space, there's a lot of stuff going on and a lot of things being built there. They spun up their own new project called Serum, which is working on sort of a really exciting piece of this DeFi space. So they're super aggressive in getting into all of these you know, niches and verticals and all this new stuff. A second company I'll highlight, um, so we invested in a company called Sitcon. Uh, Sitcon is building basically a Stripe for alternative payments, primarily around QR codes uh, and QR code-based wallets. The company was founded by Chuck Quang, who was the former chief leading architect at Visa for a handful of years. And then initially, they were working with mainly the um, Chinese-based wallets, so WeChat Pay and Alipay, and connecting those to all the merchant and POS systems here in the United States. They grew to about 50,000 merchants across 500,000 locations, doing really good payment volume. And, and this is a sort of a really great example. You know, when COVID and kind of lockdown hit, and especially with the Chinese tourism and all that, all of the um, in-person retail payments really took a huge hit, not just for them, kind of across the whole U.S. And so, you know, because they're so scrappy and because like they adjust to things so well, they completely 100 shifted their entire strategy to digital payments. So now you can pay, you could buy a, you know, a good on an e-commerce store, a delivery store, you know, even a digital good purely through your QR code based wallet as well. So all of their payment volume is basically completely switched over now. And they've gotten so much traction. They're actually, I can't say it yet, but like they're about to announce some really big partnerships with a few like major digital wallets, like outside of the Chinese-based ones that everybody would be familiar with. And, and then um, most recently, they just acquired a company called Opay, which is one of the leading merchant payment systems in Canada. So yeah, we really love them. And they're really growing their um, payment volume in a super healthy clip as well. And how about the added value that you aim to provide? Can you give us some examples on that front? Yeah, hopefully it comes through. But you know, because we've all done founders, we've all been founders and started companies before, you know, we're really founders at heart. So whenever we, you know, invest in companies themselves, we actually always take the perspective of the founder and almost think about if this was our company, how would we go about this? In fact, like the, it's one thing we always talk about. So, you know, most venture firms, they have a uh, weekly partner meetings on, you know, typically on a Monday or a Tuesday, and it's kind of a once a week thing. We actually run race like a software company where we have a daily scrum that we do every single day at 4 p.m. And when we talk about this and when we're evaluating companies, one of the things we always say amongst ourselves is, 
to invest in something, we almost need to feel like we would want to jump in and be co-founders of the company itself. Like we actually need to be that excited and passionate about it or else it would never work for them or for us. And so when we invest in something, we love to jump in around strategy, go to market, distribution, press is something that uh, Edith is, you know, really, really specializes in as well. One of the things I love to do, um, I've always done it both at Greylock and here too, you know, is when we're looking at a company, both for due diligence and also after we invest, I like to take all the competitors of that, you know, particular company, all within the industry. I like to pull sort of a customer list across the list. So who's actually using this product in the marketplace, mainly through public data, um, sort of hard to find public data, but I love to pull, you know, who, where, companies, budgets, all of that stuff. It works really well, you know, when we're diligent in a company and we're like, hey, this is literally your customer list. These are the people we should, you should be going after. Shows very well to the founder, but also most importantly, like that is the key for the company as well. Like they're going to have to, you know, do well in the marketplace and with customers that the company itself would never work. And so that's just kind of a few examples of, you know, some of the ways we like to jump in. Great. Now, I know you invest in early stage startups, but one of the ways that VCs get a liquidity event is through IPOs, right? IPOs have decreasing popularity, but what has increased in popularity recently are SPACs. Right. I was wondering if you have an opinion on whether you consider this a viable path for going public and what's uh, your general opinion on SPACs? So just to start with, by the way, like we, I am not expert on SPAC, but it just happened a couple of weeks ago because a lot of our, some of our portfolio company get approached by some of these creative SPACs. So just really, really quick on some of the statistics. So in 2019, like there's 59 SPAC actually raised about 13.6 billion. This year alone, and today is August 7th, there's already 50 SPAC in the last eight months that have been created and raised over 19 billion, with the largest, of course, a few weeks ago with uh, Bill Ackman, which is 5 billion. And he famously said that I can't wait to marry a unicorn. So, in some sense, it's a double edged sword because I think I'm going to speak from a founder point of view. Because at the end of the day, if you actually consider going public via a spec, the spec is already public. So if you go, decide to go that route, it's really a M&A conversation that you will have with the sponsor. And then sort of similar to Virgin Galactic, which is really part of the Shamath uh, spec. So in this sense, it's a little bit different journey. Of course, there aren't, unfortunately, a lot of a lot of articles that are written from a founder point of view. There's certainly like many checklists legally or financially, but really like the actual conversation is M&A. And then you have to also think about once a spec get listed, they have a maximum like 24 months. The clock is ticking for them. And then most of the time they have very dedicated specific vertical they focus on. So it could be like a health spec for healthcare related things. So or region. So there's many, many things, even though it seems like a very popular thing, more and more of it coming out. But as of July this year, it's about 50 of them. Doesn't mean that there's 50 opportunity for you to get acquired. There is only a subset because they have very specific mandate. So at the end of the day, I think that if you are a great company with amazing trajectory, I think it's interesting to see this as an option. 
But I would rather tell my own story. But this is this is sort of my my bias. But is this something definitely very popular these days, and it could potentially shorten your M and A experience? Great, thank you for that. Of course, we're going through the COVID crisis, and I'd be remiss to ask about how has this impacted your portfolio companies and yourself as a company. Yeah. On March 12th, uh, Chris actually wrote a really, really awesome post on his blog, It's Time to Act Now, which is really around thinking through all these various different facets from sales, marketing, hiring, all your financial growth, like firing. Like there's so many things that you need to think about to take care of for our existing portfolio company. So there's a few cycles that I think many companies are going through if you a, a consumer experience like the Airbnb, the Uber and Lyft is sad, like you literally have to cut budget and they're going through a very, very tough time. And then there is a complete extreme like the Zoom, right? Which is going amazing. But sometimes hyper growth also create risks, as you can see with security issue or certain scalability issue, because it was not meant to be for consumer day-to-day use. It's meant to be at the office. So either way could create a lot of impact just on your operation alone. Having said that, I think that some is very, very lucky. I have one of my portfolio companies called Agora.io. They are a um, basically Zoom as a service, uh, video and live streaming as a service. And because, yes, it's unfortunate, but because of COVID, they actually, the growth for the past six months is a combined of the last three years. And they went public on end of June with the ticker API. So we're super excited about it. But anywho, there's good and bad. All in all, I think COVID is an accelerator for many industries. I don't want to say that because of COVID, now there's telehealth. It's always been there. This infrastructure is ready to go. But it just didn't take off because now COVID kicked all of us in a butt, literally. So you either stay at home and certain things get skyrocketed. So we are cautious, but we're also excited at the same time. Yeah, I was just going to say two super quick things to that. I remember when, you know, I originally wrote the post, one of the things I wrote and I still believe is at the time, everybody thought, oh, this COVID thing, it's going to happened for a month or two, and then it's going to go away. Everything's going to be back to normal. We're all going to be in the office. Everything's going to be great. Well, didn't really play out that way. I actually think this is going to have much more longer repercussions than what most people think, even today. Like, I still think it has much longer to play out. And a lot of the trends and stuff we see you know, now from work from home to things being digitally mediated to more contactless payments, these are going to be things that are literally going to affect us for the next decade or, you know, even um, more than that. And the second thing I was just going to say quickly is, you know, the reason why, you know, we wrote that especially so early is, um, you know, because we saw a lot of the stuff going on in Asia, Hong Kong, China, you know, Taiwan, we saw a lot of the early effects of this back in November, December, you know, and when some of the early warning sites started ticking off that this was going to spread outside of some of those geographic areas, we just applied a lot of the learnings we took from there and said, hey, you guys need to act now and really think about this stuff. So yeah, unfortunately, it's continued to play out that way too. And so in light of this COVID crisis, 
Are there any particular areas within fintech that you are most excited about? I think fintech as a whole, I think, has benefited from this a lot, maybe with a few exceptions like, you know, consumer or like subprime, you know, lending type stuff, I think might, you know, have a bit of a tougher time. A lot of the early um, sort of payday or like employment stuff too, especially with the continuation or not of the $600 payment on the US side is also going to have a tough time. Again, for us, like we tend to focus less on the applications. So we're far less interested in like the payment app or the, you know, exchange app, like the Robinhood or the SoFi kind of a, of the world itself. Some of those will have sort of dislocated sort of effects to them. But yeah, 100% on the infrastructure side, all this stuff needs to improve. One example we saw was, you know, back a few months ago with the PPP payment, you know, you had all these super old archaic systems trying to process literally hundreds of millions of dollars of payment. And, you know, I forgot the agency, there was an agency that called out on Twitter, we need COBOL developers. And it's like, what is going on? <laughs> like, these things need to, A, not be built on COBOL systems, that's really scary. B, not be built on mainframe systems, that's also pretty scary too. Like, these need to be cloud-based architecture, you know, with, uh, you know, API on, you know, native systems that people can play with. All of this stuff needs an upgrade. It's obvious now more than ever. And this is like the kickstart in order to, we need to do all this stuff. And so, A, I think this is a huge net positive, especially on the infrastructure space. But yeah, across the board on the consumer side, there's going to be some softer and hotter categories in it too. Yeah, I think only a handful of people around the world could code Cobalt. <laughs> well, this has been great, uh, Chris and Eva. Before we go, we always like to ask about some of your hobbies and we would love to hear how you spend some of your time outside of work, outside of race capital. Well, I have two kids. <laughs> uh, I have a four-year-old and a one-year-old. Four-year-old was in traditional kindergarten and when all this stuff happened, now the kids are home with us 24-7. Our school tried to do um, kindergarten via Zoom, which didn't work out so well. <laughs> And so, so much of my free time is now, you know, helping my eyes, spending time with the kids. I used to do a lot of photography stuff before this. Actually, back in, I think it was 2016, I was the National Geographic Award winner for that year for uh, in the nature photography category. Uh, but now I basically repurposed all my equipment to be the most expensive <laughs> Zoom camera setup you've ever seen. So, you know, it's not as exciting anymore. But yeah, between that and the kids, it kind of takes up most of my time. For me is... I turned into a really good chef and I do YouTube yoga and when I have nothing to do, I look through TikTok and check out really awesome recipe for fried chicken. So that's how I passed my time while during COVID. <laughs> <laughs> well, fascinating and really appreciate both of you joining us, Chris Edith. I've learned a lot. I'm sure our audience will enjoy this conversation and would love to keep in touch. And if it's ever possible, we'll also love to see you around campus. Yeah. yeah. And I'll just say one final comment. Uh, I wouldn't be a good VC if I didn't say this. If there's any entrepreneurs listening that are doing anything, especially on the FinTech infrastructure side, please reach out. We'd love to talk to you. My email address is just chris at race.capital. Send us a note. Love to chat. Always love meeting early stage entrepreneurs, especially from Wharton. Fascinating. <laughs> we'll make sure that the Wharton community hears about race capital. Awesome. Thank Great. you. Yeah, thank one. you so much. It was fun. Thank you both. I appreciate it. 
thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.